morning is November, no, what month is it? This morning is December 4th, it is 2011, this ball of dirt we live on is hurling around the sun at a frightening pace, it's about to be 2012, uh, relax, the Mayans were wrong, having said that, you don't have any time to waste, the kingdom is at hand. Our message this morning is 51%, my father's God's. Our church is on a reading plan. If you're not familiar with that, it is on the back table. Uh, this would mean that November 3rd, yesterday, you would have read Genesis 31, uh, up to Genesis 31, and you would have also read Matthew 14. If you're way ahead of that, praise God. If you're behind that, pick up the pace. Get the lead out. It is time to go with the saints of God. We can read a couple chapters a day easily. In my family... We're going to finish the Bible now by February. It was May, but that's just too easy. And uh, I leave for Europe in February, so we're going to finish it by February. I found out my family loves the Word of God more than they love the X Factor. They love the Word of God more than they like any of those programs. I just wasn't giving it to them. I was hoarding it all myself. Men of God, stand up in your homes. Give your family the Word of God. They may resist initially. They will love you for it in the end because it is the life-changing power of God. Amen? Amen. Turn to Exodus 20. 51%. My Father's God's. The benefit of being on the same reading plan with the rest of the church is not that we're trying to institute a liturgical order. It is simply that I will begin to draw from what you are reading from and show you how to study the Word of God as we go through the year. I will show you how to mine it for its depth, how for it to change your life, and how in every chapter of the Bible there is something for you that will absolutely meet you where you are, no matter where you are. That's the goal. So we'll get to those in a minute, but we're going to start in Exodus 20. Are you all there? Amen. Exodus 20, starting in, say, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What is that usually known as? The first what? Amen. Commandments. The first mitzvah. There being 613, but with special emphasis placed on the very first ten. Right? So the first commandment was you shall have no other gods. And then the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. He goes on to describe other activities you're not supposed to do. So are we clear? Commandment number one. You shall have no gods before me. Commandment number two. You shall have no graven images, no idols of any kind, whether above or below makes no difference. Commandment number one, the revelation, the great theophany from the heavens. God speaks to a whole nation at once. Like, can you imagine that? America, I want your attention. The whole nation at once, except it wasn't America. It was easier to get Israel's attention. He speaks to the whole nation at once. And the first thing he says to him, you shall have no other gods before me. Then, as if there was any mistake, he clarifies it. I don't want even any graven images of any gods around. Are we clear? Now he gives eight more commandments right there in order. Am I wrong? Is that right? He gives eight more? Yeah. Ten total? Y'all talk to me this morning. Yeah. 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 I just saw my wife run through the parking lot that way. I thought somebody was stealing my truck again. <laughs> 
Then I realized there's not a truck out there to steal. Steve, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be without a Honda. <laughs> Come on now. Look, let's, uh, let's skip on down in 20 to verse 22. This is four verses after the Ten Commandments. Are you getting that? We've, we've given you Ten Commandments, the first two of which had to do with no gods, no graven images. Now we go through eight commandments plus four verses. And what are we saying again? Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this. You're doing good, Dustin. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Could God be any more emphatic? No. The first thing he says from heaven, <laughs> no gods. Second thing he says from heaven, not even any pictures of any gods, no videos, no holographs, nothing on your computers, nothing, 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 no gods. He gives you eight more commandments. And he says, by the way, did I tell you? I want no other gods. He adds the words alongside me. He says, if to say, no other gods, no pictures of other gods. By the way, when I say that, I mean, don't even have other gods in addition to me. It's like covering every possible misunderstanding. Wouldn't you think that would be emphatically clear? Yes. It is clear. But what we find out is it's hard to do. So what do you mean, Eric? I don't have any idols. Well, hang on to your seat. I have never been the warm fatherly type. Ask my children. I'm more the older brother that will kick you right in the butt and say, get moving. Right? I can't do it. That's who I am. If God had wanted you to have a warm fatherly pastor that patted you on the back all the time, he'd have given you that. But he didn't. Praise God, he's given us some elders and other pastors and they have some more of those qualities. But that's not my particular gifting. I love you all and the way that I show that love is to kick you in the butt and say, let's get moving. Because at the end of the day, I think you will value where you've gone more than you will value my pat on the back. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, y'all ready then? Yeah. Hang on to your pants, okay? Because here comes the kick. Let's go to Joshua 24. Tell me when you get to Joshua 24. Yeah, I'm trying. My pages are stuck together. I'd like to say it's from all the tears, but it's the newness of the Bible. So in our nation, what does it take to decided direction. And why are we always taking polls in our nation? Like, uh, let's see, do we support Steve and Steve being married? Uh, do, we, uh, do we redefine marriage? Do, do we even need a constitution? How do we settle issues like this? Well, you know, we got guys like, um, well, I probably shouldn't name them. We have national polling institutes. And they call a sample selection. Do you ever wonder what selection those people are sampling? Yeah. Right? 47% approve of this, that, and the other. You're like, where are those 47%? They've not been watching TV for a while? What? I don't get it. But in any case, we take sample selections. And based on that sample selection, we extrapolate out what the majority of the people want. How do we determine what a majority is? 51%. If 51% want something, then that's the way our nation's supposed to go in this representative democracy. Now, we have found out that is not always the case. But that was the theory anyway. You know what? That democratic idea is bled over into the church in a really nasty personal way. We have decided that if 51% of us is dedicated to the Lord, then we're all out for the Lord, baby. Because the majority of me is headed that way. And we forget that 49% of us wants nothing to do with the Lord. 
Now, Eric, that's not very accurate. Okay, 70-30. How How hard would we have to search to find, I don't know, 10 areas out of 100 in your life that you don't exactly have the Lord first yet? See, but with 51%, we, we, we say, hey, man, I'm a Christian. I walked an aisle when I was eight. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I live like the devil, but 51% of me believes that Jesus is Lord. So I'm saying, let's look at this in Joshua 24. Pick up with me in 14. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's almost as if Joshua paints this as a matter of desire. He says, if it seems undesirable to you, go pick some other guy. It does not sound like God is a rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman. Who is saying, you got to buy this today. I'm not leaving unless you buy it today. And by the way, all your friends are buying it. Everybody on the street's going to have one. You're going to be the only one to do it. There's only nine left. Oh, I got a phone call. There is only three left. And you can have this for the magic price of whatever I can get out of you. This is not God. It's not. He's not selling anything. He is simply the ultimate. And He displays His righteous character in His Word. He reveals from heaven who He is. And then He says, If you desire Me, follow Me. If you don't, I'll deal with you later. Amen. Yeah. So it really is up to us. And we need to govern what our desires are then. Because if you desire everything other than the Lord, if 49 points in you desire something other than the Lord, you can call yourself a Christian by majority rule, but this is not a democracy. The kingdom is a theocracy. It's all God or it's none of God. Are you hearing that? All or none. This is what it means to be born again. You leave the old nature behind and you run in the new nature. No more looking back. No more second guessing. No more longing for the world. The Bible clearly declares that if you long for that, He will give you the opportunity to return. What He wants from us is us to desire Him. There's a very troubling part of this scripture. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefather worshipped. How do you throw away something you don't have? Steve, I want you to throw away 50 pounds of gold. Steve's going to have a hard time doing that. He doesn't have 50 pounds of gold. How do you throw away something you don't have? Come on, church. You forget. You can't. You can't. You can't throw away what you don't have. So what does that tell you Israel possessed? Idols. Foreign gods. Well, this must be the day that God told them, right? Well, they met with... They met with God at the mountain, at Sinai, months out of Egypt. They went through a desert on a two-year journey. They run in to a little obstacle called the Promised Land where God had told them to go. Seems that they couldn't quite muster the courage to go in. I wonder what compromised their lives that caused them to not be fully confident. Could it be that they were packing along something they shouldn't have? 
Then they go into the promised land 38 years later. So that, I mean, all those old bad people died. All those people who failed God, they died now with a new generation, the new wineskins, the spirit filled. <laughs> They've gone through the whole conquest of Canaan. Joshua is about to die. And what do they still have among them? Foreign gods. Foreign gods. After God had given them the promised land. Oh yeah, Lord, the Lord is the Lord of my life. I, I'm in Him. Now there's no idols. I'm in the promised land. Except they were rife with foreign gods. Could it be that they didn't recognize that they were foreign gods? Could it be they didn't think it was that big a deal? Like maybe... Maybe the Lord's not so concerned about this little thing, you know? I mean, I just keep it with me because my dad had it. I just keep it with me because, you know, my grandfather had it. Well, who were these people? Where did this all start with? Start with a man named Abraham, didn't it? But how did Abraham get here? He had a daddy. Everybody came from somewhere. Look at the first verse in Joshua 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officials of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped, worshipped other, gods. other gods. So just to be clear here, we start with a man named Terah. Terah had two sons. Those two sons were Nahor and Abraham. Two sons we're dealing with. I love Jacob. He's a, got an attention to detail. The third we don't address. The reason these two sons are addressed is the whole lineage of the people of God comes from these two boys. In fact, let's just assume who wants to be on the right and who wants to be on the left today? Which one, Cody? Right or left? Cody's going to be right. So today, this is the 51%. Can I make y'all say that? This is the 49%. We have two kinds of descendants coming out of the people of God right here. We have two seeds that are racing forth. We have Terah, who birthed Abraham and Nahor. An amazing thing, because God called who out of Ur of the Chaldees? He called Abraham. And he began to shed from Abraham's life certain habits. You all remember the Jewish story I told you about? Abraham knocking over all of his father's gods. Knocked them all over, put a machete in one of them's hands. At least the Hebrew equivalent. Dad comes in and says, Abraham, what has happened? He said, I think it's quite obvious what happened here. No, Abraham, what, what did you do? Why do you think I did it? He did it. No, he can't do that. He, he's just a statue. Then why do you worship him? Abraham got a revelation. God called to him from the heavens. Abraham was told, leave your father's household. Right? We're going to see something about the rest of the descendants. By the way, just in case you didn't know, in your readings here, because I know all of you are following the Bible plan, right? Go ahead and nod to me. Lie to me. Because if you're not following the Bible plan, you're going to start following the Bible plan, right? Amen. Yeah. One of Nahor's descendants, his son, was a man named Laban. Would y'all like to read about Laban? Turn with me to Genesis 24, a very familiar story because you read it in the last two weeks, right? So in Genesis 24, we're going to hear something about Laban. 
Now, you may not have known that Laban was the son of Nahor, but you probably knew, because you guys are all so smart, that Rebekah was the daughter of Nahor. See, you've got to deduce it from the Scripture. What happens is that the Scripture says Rebekah is the daughter of Nahor, and then later it says Laban's her brother. Yeah. It's like that embarrassing other brother that few of the presidents have, you know? The one you don't want to be in the news media. Are you all in Genesis 24? In Genesis 24, let's read a little something about Laban. Uh, maybe we could pick up in, let's see if I can find it, 28. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban. And he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring, because we all know how attractive those are, <laughs> and the bracelets on his sister's arm. By the way, what was that nose ring made of? Oh. And what were the bracelets made of? Oh. Laban seems to have a nose for gold, no pun intended. And he heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her. He went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. What did it take to convince Laban that the chief steward in Abraham's house who this story is about was blessed of the Lord? What did it take to convince him? I saw she had a gold nose ring and some gold bracelets. Oh, the man who gave her this. What a blessed man. He's blessed by the Lord. Where could you get such a wicked idea as that? It's a good thing that's not found anywhere in the church today, isn't it? It's a good thing that you don't find anybody trying to equate wealth and possessions that Jesus said thieves would steal and moths would destroy with heavenly treasures. It's a good thing that's not a problem we have. But if you ever were in a situation where that was a problem, then praise God, 1 Corinthians 10 says these things in the sixth verse. In the sixth verse, says that these things were written down as examples for us, upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, to teach us not to set our hearts on wicked things, as some of them did. So this story is written down for us. Let's see what else we get out of it. Laban saw gold and said, Wow! What a blessing this man must be. Turn with me to the 30th chapter. Because you read that two days ago, and it's still really fresh in your mind, and that means you'll get a lot out of this this morning. Got one amen out of that, and that was a pastor. Amen. There we go. Thank you, Joel. We at least got two witnesses. Now we can move forward. In the uh, 30th chapter, pick up with me in the 27th verse. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he added, name your wages and I'll pay them. If you have a footnote there, there's some argument as to this translation. I've learned by divination that uh, the Lord's made me rich because of you is one of the possibilities. Yeah. It seems that Laban has an interest not only in money, but how did he find out? Divination, that's something the Lord loves or doesn't love? So Laban looked at material things and said, oh, the blessing of the Lord. And Laban was willing to use even witchcraft 
as long as he could properly discern where wealth would be found. Yeah? Is that right? Any means necessary? Could it be that when Terah had two sons, one of them came out not only of the region they lived in, but out of the lifestyle they lived in, and the other didn't come all the way out? And because of that, everything he ever touched would be a little bit tainted. Everything he ever did would just be a little bit selfish. Now, let's not get the impression that Laban didn't think that he loved the Lord. The Lord spoke to him. Sometimes he was obedient to what the Lord said. Sometimes. I mean, have y'all been reading these stories? <laughs> Turn with me to Genesis 31. Since you read it yesterday, this will make a bunch of sense to you. Genesis 31. Are y'all getting the idea that I think the Word of God is important? Yeah. <laughs> that I don't want you to come here and just wait to be spoon fed? You get the idea that I think enough of you to say in good old-fashioned Protestant genre? That's probably not the right way to use that. I think you're smart enough to interpret it yourself. You don't need the history of the church to teach you. I believe that you are capable of receiving from heaven yourself. I believe that you are capable of discerning a divine direction and running to it with purpose. I believe it so strongly that I think my only purpose is to help equip you in doing that. That's what I think. That's what I believe the Word teaches. If what we're looking for is a religious institution that says, you are too stupid to understand this Word. You are too rich, dumb, and lazy to understand this Word. Show up for an hour. No, let's go ahead and just say... 25 minutes, and I'll give you what you need for the week. In, in fact, if you can't make it for those 25 minutes of preaching, tune in on TV. Just be sure to send some money our way. If that's what you want, you'll find it everywhere. That's not what you want, and that's why you're meeting here today. And other Christians around the globe have rejected it in wholesale fashion too, and they are striving for the living God because we want something more. But among the people of God, there has always been this tendency, not just to a prosperity gospel, but to harbor things that should not be there. Let's go back to Laban in Genesis 31. In 31, let's pick up in 14. Then Rachel and Leah, by the way, Rachel and Leah are the daughters of who? Laban. 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 So we go from Rachel and Leba, Leba, Leah to Laban, to Nahor, to Terah. And Terah was an idolater. So it's reasonable to assume that Nahor may have been an idolater because his son is an idolater. And now we have Rachel and Leah. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance with our father's estate? By the way, there's an argument going on, or at the very least, a passionate discussion. What has happened is that Jacob has been working for Laban. He said, I worked for you for seven years, but I want your pretty daughter in return. Laban said, sure, no problem. What's that between us? At the end of the seven years, in a veiled fashion, have you ever wondered why we raise a veil to kiss a bride in a wedding? This is the story. Genesis is, is the story. Because apparently, Mr. Jacob forgot to raise the veil and kiss the woman. Woke up next to a woman the next day that was not the pretty honey he had hoped to have married. Laban says, no problem. Let's not let that come between us. I mean, it's the wrong woman. And you're now in an eternal, unbreakable covenant. But let that not be a problem. For only another 
seven years. You, my friend, can have the rainbow vacuum. I mean, the uh, other daughter. They were possessions to be sold, to be bartered with. That's how he thought of his family. And the poor girls were subjected to it. When I say subjected to it, did they come out of the womb deciding that they were going to be idolaters? No. No, they grew up in a house where they had a sinful nature, and that sinful nature was taught sinful things. We're going to find out just a little glimpse into where we're going with this. You didn't come out of the womb with a predisposition to serve other gods. You just came out with a sinful nature. And we grew up with certain habits that we've learned to call habits instead of other gods. And so we've tried to walk with the Lord while we're helping them in our lives. Let's go read about Rachel and Leah. I mean, you'll probably have this memorized, but just in case, you know, I think Judah's still struggling with the memorization, so we'll, we'll go ahead and read it. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Because that's what's important. I mean, can we get some money from the old man? That's all that's important. Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that the Lord God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you to do. Jacob was talking with his wives and saying, Look, I've been cheated. I've been cheated by your daddy. He's changed my wages ten times. It's, it's been a really ugly ordeal. If I said... Uh, I want speckled sheep. He said, no problem, agreed. But then he ran right out and took his speckled sheep and gave them to his three sons the same day we agreed. Laban was kind of a... Uh, a what? A Laban. Laban was kind of a, a Laban. Uh, no, that's a curse word in Germany. And I, I now minister in Germany occasionally, so I'm not allowed to say that particular word, although it flows off my tongue too. It's funny how that works. It's not foul in our culture, but when you say it there, uh, everybody blushes. So, um, not a good word. A trickster. Was he the only trickster in the group? No. Whose name meant trickster deceiver? Jacob. So it seems that no matter what side you've descended from, all the people of God have a little bit of trickster in them, doesn't it? So these two girls that have been raised by the trickster are arguing with their husband, who is a bit of a trickster himself about whether or not it's okay for them to leave. I said, sure, we don't have any financial interest in this anymore. There's nothing we can gain here anymore. Look at verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, I bet he was good at shearing the sheep. I bet that man could cut that wool right down to the skin. He may even have caused some scabs and some blood on those sheep. I bet he got every last little ounce of wool out of the sheep he could get. You know how I know that? I've met lots of Labans in my life. A lot of them are in the church world. All they really want out of people is what they can sell them for. All they really want out of people is what they can get out of the people. But the good shepherd is the one that lays down his life for the sheep. The one that is sacrificial towards other people. The one that puts their needs before his. Not the one who speaks well. Not the one who is the prettiest. Not the one who is the most influential. Not the one who is the most politically plugged in. The good shepherd is the one that lays down his life. When Laban had gone to shear a sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. She stole them. Is stealing good? No. Does God generally frown upon stealing? Yes. How did God feel about 
other gods. Didn't like them. He didn't like them very much, did he? Yeah. Now, well, wait a minute, Eric. Wait a minute. You don't understand. There are dispensations in the Bible. <laughs> See, God spoke to a man named Schofield who had a legal background. And he told that man everything should be broken up into seven clear dispensations. And then his buddy John Nelson Darby uh, was the Moses of our day. He wrote it in stone, and so the church world must believe that God acts seven different ways during different times. Did y'all read that in the Bible? No. No, it wasn't in your reading? No. Because it's not in the Bible, although it's commonly believed throughout the church world, phrased in a slightly different way. They will say, oh, see, these people didn't know. This is a different dispensation. The Mosaic Law came, and that dispensation was one of restriction, one of bondage. Of course, that's not what the Bible says about that time period. It says that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He says he doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a man. He's not a shifting shadow. He doesn't do those things. Can you believe that the people of God knew that God was a jealous God? Yeah. Can yeah. you believe that he wanted them to worship him only? Yeah. And if they knew that? Yeah. I'll prove to you that they knew it before Moses said it here in a minute. But do you think that the woman had some inclination stealing was wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why'd she do it? Do you think she had some idea idolatry was wrong? Yeah. So why'd she do it? Do you think she loved Jacob? Yeah. Do you think she thought she was serving God? I kind of think she does. I do. You know why? She traded her mandrakes. Did y'all look that one up? <laughs> she wanted to produce the Messiah. She wept and she cried because she wanted to produce godly lineage. She competed. I think that the woman loved the Lord. The problem is she also loved her foreign gods. And she also loved her devilish ways that she learned from her daddy, who learned from his daddy, who learned from his daddy, Terah. And there had to be a process to weed them out of her life. We can't know what is there if it's well hidden, can we? Ever get the sense when you're sitting talking with somebody? Mike came over and talked to me last night. It was a good conversation. One of the reasons I like to talk to Mike, and it, it, we had a little bit of this in it. Good friends do that. If you don't have a little bit of this with your pastor... You need to find a new pastor or actually treat him like a pastor and share your life with him. I promise if you do that with me, we will have a little collision every now and then. That's the kingdom. That's iron sharpening iron. But one of the things I like about talking to Mike is I don't often have to wonder what he's thinking. I think he likes that about me. Is that true, Mike? Mike and I have very concise conversations. He says exactly what he means, and in the brilliance of human communication, I'm able to understand that. Because he said exactly what he meant. I don't have to deliberate. I don't have to to begin to go, he said this, but I won't. And, and then, in another brilliant stroke of human evolution, I actually say what I think. Whoa. If something happens, we can deal with what's come out. If you have a continuous internal dialogue going on that's not coming out of your mouth, it might not be healthy. The Word of God is brought in to rein that in in us, to teach us to compare our thoughts with God's thoughts. And you know what? The devil isolates. And the reason that he isolates is so that there are fewer people that you can have collisions with that might say that thought you're having is a devilish thought. Except sometimes. See, you can say sept when you're from Louisiana. It's supposed to be except. Except sometimes. Sometimes. We don't isolate by leaving the group. We just stop sharing with the group. 
Because, you know, if I told them, then there's going to be some, some collision. And we don't want that. That's not why we're here. Then why are you here? To stay exactly as you are and leave us exactly as we are? Nope. I would say that this family is all about godly collision. And that it has to be. That is how we spur one another. Is spurring sound like collision to you? That's how we spur one another on towards holiness. Amen. That's how we learn and grow. As the pastor, I sometimes get to look and say, Michael, I'm sorry, I probably overreacted. He gets to look at me sometimes and say, I may not have given you the right impression. I want to do better than that. Right? Amen. That is what collisions produce. You know what we did? We walked away with, with peace. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Have you ever sat in a conversation and said almost nothing and then went home? Went back through it in your mind, and, and then I should have said. And then, then oh, yeah. I, I should have said. And before long, you can't even remember what they said. You just know you're still mad. Yeah. No matter how much better you'd feel if you just said it. But I thought we weren't supposed to say ungodly things. You're not even supposed to think ungodly things. If you've already gotten to the thought stage and you're with me, you can go ahead and say it, and I'll help you correct it. <laughs> but if you don't say it, how can I address what you didn't say? You understand that? Okay, well, I'm not sure I understand it, but I said it. It's out there. Are y'all ready for the rest of Genesis 31? When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Armenian by not telling him he was running away. Got a whole lot of deception going on, don't we? That's kind of an ugly thing. Skip down to verse 29. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Do you hear that? The God of whose father? Your. Your. Now, Laban was more than willing to divide and try to determine God's will if there was some wealth in it. But when it comes down to doing something that he doesn't want to do, it's suddenly the God of your, your father. father. You, you know, we have these arguments as, as husbands and wives. Are there any husbands and wives in this room? Yeah. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're a husband or a wife. Okay, so I'm talking to the vast majority of you at the moment, right? When the child scores the touchdown, it's my son. When the child forgot to cl clean his room for a week, it's, you know what that boy of yours is doing? Yeah. yeah. This is how Laban treats God. If it's something that's good for him, it's, I divined of God last night. If it's something that's not good for him, it's, uh, yeah, your God said this. And what did he say first to his own son-in-law? Thank you, Fred, for not being Laban. Listen to what he said to his own son-in-law. I have the power to harm you. Because that's what every good relationship is based on, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, that's, that's, that's what you want. Cody will go one day, get on a knee, ask some little girl to marry. She'll probably be called of God and amazing. And what he hopes for is that the man walks out and says, Cody, I have the power to harm you. <laughs> but I may choose not to. Relationship based on intimidation is not very healthy, is it? Amen. So as much as I'm saying we should speak our mind, our goal is definitely not to intimidate each other. That's Laban. That's yuckiness. What happens, though? It turns out that as we move on down to, I don't know, say verse 34, 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and had put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but he found nothing. 
Rachel said to her father, I mean, what's a little lie after thievery and idolatry? Don't be angry, my lord. I cannot stand up in your presence. I have this physical weakness. I can't help the way that I am. I just have to be this way. It's my lot in life. We've never seen that excuse in the church, have we? It's just the way that I am. She blamed her idolatry, her thievery, and her stealing upon her menstrual cycle. Now, having never had one, <laughs> and living with the hope that I shall never experience one, I cannot say for certain, but I have it on good authority that it does not cause idolatry, thievery, or lying but very well may cause mild irritation with your husband. <laughs> what could we possibly get from this? This girl had something in her life that was going to affect the whole course of Israel's history. It was a piece of Ur of the Chaldees that was supposed to stay in Ur of the Chaldees, but it kept resurfacing in the lives of believers. And when... We have a chance that God has arranged the circumstances to go through the tents to remove it. She hides it. And when even her secret hiding place can be found, she says, it's in such a personal place. Nobody can live. I won't get any more graphic than that, but sometimes we take our idolatry, our wrong thinking, our devilish tendencies. And we don't just bury them in our tent. We don't just put them on the throne that we're sitting on. We shove them so far into our lives that even anointed men of God have trouble rooting them out. And we wonder why we are the way we are. Because we remember if we're 51% devoted to the Lord, we're the Lord's. We're not going to worry about those 49 idols. We're Americans. I personally believe that it doesn't work that way. Let's talk about this idolatry for a moment and what that might look like. Are y'all okay with another video? I mean, if it's under two minutes. Okay? Tell me if you're okay or not okay with it. Okay. Okay, because we were going to watch it whether you're okay with it or not, but it's polite. It's a polite thing to ask. Is that fair enough? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. I'm going to put it on right here. Brandon, would you grab that light? You're going to have to watch the sound here, Dave. Sound. I'm going to pause it for a second. Uh, you tell me when you have sound. Um, you're... Okay, I'm going to turn it back on. There should be sound. I've got it all the way up. Uh, then we don't have a channel on that. Hurry. While we were waiting for that, tell me when you have it, Matt, and I'll hit play. Turn to with me to Amos 5. It'll take you a little while to find Amos, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> Amos is just after Hosea. That'll probably buy all the time we need. <laughs> oh, Dustin's been reading his Bible. Dee Dee's been reading her Bible. Oh, sorry. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes. You ready to play? 
Wow, by the beautiful miracle of our modern technology that blows up on us every time we want to use it, we are going to leave this part of the message behind. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't want to, Matt. Why don't you see if you can fix this? And uh, we'll come back to it. Are y'all in Amos 5? Yes. yes. Really, um, there has been no physical manifestation that changed any of these components. So it, we'll probably get to it. Are y'all in Amos 5? Yes. yes. Okay. In Amos 5, look at verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. It seems that the entire time the people of God were following the cloud by day, the fire by night, that what was happening is they had hidden in their sacks, hidden in their lives, idols. If they did, and they were examples for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, is it reasonable to assume, assume that in any spirit-filled group who is following a cloud by day and a fire by night, there may be something in the 49% that is yet undiscovered? All we need to do to begin to discover that is say, what habits do you have that you learned in your father's house? Instead of God, our Father's house. How many of you ladies do not view yourself like the Bible views you? Anybody in here believe that a virtuous wife uh, who can find her value is far greater than anything else? Anybody believe Proverbs 31.10? Raise your hand if you believe it. So how many ladies feel like you are the most valuable thing in a man's life, period? Anybody want to raise your hand? Cassie, amen. Dee Dee. Why are we slow to raise our hands? Why are we slow to raise our hands? Why is it that we struggle with our image and our self-worth? Could it be that in our Father's house, in the land of idolatry, we were taught to view ourselves in an improper way, and we still haven't come out of it no matter what the Bible says? Well, good thing there's only problems with ladies. Could it be, husbands, that the reason we strive for success the way that we do, the reason our worth is wrapped up in our job the way that it is, the reason that our whole direction can be about what's happening during those 40 hours a week that, of course, are going to mean nothing in eternity. Could it be that somewhere in our Father's house we picked up the idea the only way to be a success in this world is to be successful in business? Tell me that's not an idol. Tell me in what world that is not an idol. But we don't think of it as idolatry. We think of it as good old common sense. When do we begin to teach our children, by the way? The only way you will ever be a success is to be in the presence of God. The only way that you will ever find happiness is in the presence of God. Why do we continue to tell our children they should be doctors and lawyers rather than tell them you should be exactly what God's called you even if, oh dear God, you're a sanitation engineer. I'd rather be a garbage collector in the will of God than the richest attorney in the world. The richest attorney in the world that is out of the will of God. 
Amen. See, we picked up things in our Father's house that we're unaware that we have. And when people try to get close to them, we bury them a little deeper. And if they push hard enough, we bury them so deep that it would be indecent to expose it and we blame them for trying. So why are you here? we are not here to get rid of the idols in our lives, then we are playing a ridiculous game that I am unwilling to play. You know why? There are people out there that don't know they can get free of these things. They have no idea that the bondages in their life are something that can be shed and they need somebody to tell them. Why would we spend all of our time trying to convince somebody when the issue is a desire issue? If it seems undesirable to you to serve the Lord, then pick another God. You got plenty. You hear that? You got plenty. Go on and serve your work instead of Jesus. Go on and worship your family instead of Jesus. Go on and build your perfect house instead of Jesus. Go on and build your athletic career instead of Jesus. Go on and build your 401k. Pick a God. Do anything that you want if it seems undesirable to you to serve Jesus. But we don't say that. We say I'm 51% committed to Jesus and I'm 49% committed to all those other things. Then we work our theology out to where it's okay because God wants us to do those things anyway. My God, if we could just be honest. At least the Bible honestly says these heroes of the faith took their gods and hid them in their houses. And when you couldn't hide it in the tent, you hid it under your throne. And when you couldn't hide it under your throne... You said it's somewhere that if you look, it would embarrass us both. Don't do it. I'm going to stay the way I am and you stay the way you are. And that's okay, isn't it? We'll just continue another few years like this. And we'll call it mercy. And let's cover over with some more grace. And some more grace. Until you are choking on it and don't know why you're unhappy. How long can we look towards material things to make us happy before we go, no amount of mani-pedis? No amount of beautiful hairdos, no amount of makeup, no amount of new cars, no amount of new TV are going to make me happy. Maybe I could try to do something daring for the Lord. Amen. There is no pat on the back like the one you get from Him after doing something that was hard to do. Come on, am I preaching to anybody in here? Yeah. Yes. When we have these kind of difficulties and they're distracting, I know it hurts your ears. I'd probably hurt your ears a whole lot more, Lord. The devil would do anything to stop this message because as long as you have those gods, you know what you don't do? You don't have the confidence to face down and defy them. You don't have the confidence to do what God has called you to do. And what Amos said is, you worship these gods all of those years, but my name is El Shaddai. Maybe we should look at what El Shaddai means. But I would like you to hear a video. Matt, we're good with the video? I'd like you to hear a video that I think correctly lays its finger on some of our gods. I'm not troubled in my heart about your self-esteem. I'm not troubled in my heart about whether or not feel good about yourself, whether or not life is turning out like you want it to turn out, or whether or not your checkbook is balanced. There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night. There's only one thing that troubled me all throughout the morning, and that is this. 
within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. And many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend an eternity in hell. Many of the things that you love to do, God hates. Did you know that? Pray for revival. You're going to have a youth meeting. You want God to move. But before you go there, you watch programs on television that God absolutely despises. And then you wonder why the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on a place and why you have to create false fire and false excitement. Because God's not in it. God is a holy God. And the only way you and I could ever be reconciled to a holy God is through the death of God's own Son when He hung on that tree. Because you need to realize the Bible says for all the sin that comes short of the glory of God and you have no idea church, of course, they don't want him. He was preaching to 5,000 people when he said it. When they began to applaud, he was so disgusted with their applause, you heard what he said. I don't know why you're clapping, I'm talking about you. See, the problem is, we think that because we're in the lineage of Christ now, grafted in, that we have no idols in our life. We hide them so deeply that we all pretend to not know they're there. We have buried them under the thrones that we sit on that exalt ourselves, and we pretend like everything is okay. We ignore the fact that our entertainment is more important to us than salvation of the lost. We ignore the fact that we have no concern whatsoever for the neighbor on our left and our right. We build for ourselves false fire. We say, oh, because I'm excited today, we feel the anointing. Well, why are you excited? Because I'm blessed. Because it's pizza day at church. Because I got over on my neighbor. What are you excited about? I have no holiness sometimes. I say, well, 
Eric, I'm holy. The problem is, is I'm self-condemning all of the time. That's not holy. It is not holy to look into the face of the Word of God and say, you're wrong about me. That is not holiness. Self-esteem issues are of the devil. So what, Eric, talking to me like that's not going to fix my self-esteem. The only thing that will is sitting in your laps. When will we begin to believe it? We're the most pampered, most spoiled church that has ever existed at any time in history. And all we do is ask God to do more for us instead of believing what He has already said about us and commissioned us to do. We invent problems for ourselves. So Eric, some of my problems are very real. That's why we have a very real Savior. But as long as we're clinging to all of the foreign gods, we rarely see real salvation. Some other points that the man touched on. We're not facing the cross in a real way. Our conversions have become cheap. Why are you a Christian? Well, because I was a pretty good old boy, but now I just wanted to follow Him. That tells us there are so many idols hiding in your tent. The throne of your life is very... High. No regeneration. Are you better off in the Lord today than you were last year? If you cannot answer that question under oath before the living God as yes a thousand times over yes, then you are backslidden no matter what you think. It is backslidden to not be progressing because He calls us forward. But we tell ourselves as long as we don't say bad words or smoke cigarettes, then we are not backslidden. Friends, you are backslidden if you are not pressing into the all-sufficient, more-than-enough God, and He is changing your very character. And if He is not changing your character, we need to ask, am I hiding it from Him? Am I hiding it from those He has sent to help me? Am I so scared that I won't be accepted if I tell them the truth? you got that, that knowing feeling that I know something about your life right now, it's because God knows something about your life. Get over yourself. I don't tailor these messages to any one person. Cassidy's got a theory that if I don't look at you during the service, that, I, that I'm probably preaching to you. So let me make eye contact with all of you, or better yet, let me not look at any of you. I'm talking to all of you. Everyone. These areas of our life that continually drag us back to the hell that God has called us out of, they pull on our lives right back to Ur of the Chaldees. We need to at some point go, I have been sitting on an idol and it's not good for me. Quit hiding it from the inspection crew. Get it out there so it can get carved out no matter what it costs you. That is the kingdom. It is a reckless abandonment of everything and a relentless pursuit of Jesus. That is the kingdom. And we've reduced it to a nursery school rhyme that you sit in church and pray a ridiculous prayer that's not found in the Bible. If you got saved with a sinner's prayer, praise God, you're in the tiny, tiny, tiny remnant that it actually worked. But the vast majority went to a meeting, said a prayer, nothing changed. (laughs) but they call themselves Christians. And that's why 80% of America says they're born again. Of course, the popular evangelists, the ones that are friends of presidents, the ones that speak to the largest crowds and every news station is excited about, don't say this. They speak about the cross, but don't make you deal with the cross as it relates to you. Amen. We have become pillow 
pillow-puffing prophets. It's all soft, all sweet. You know, I just want to go somewhere where they make me feel good. Why, if it does nothing to remove the idols from our lives? Turn to Genesis 35. Let's remove idols. I was in a messianic synagogue that I have come to enjoy the men very much. I love them. I'm appreciative for what they do. They're my family. And the man felt as if he was being a little hard on his uh, congregation. What he considers hard and what I consider hard are dramatically different things. He suggested that it was possible that in a room with some 750 people, somebody in there may be dealing with some unforgiveness. And he suggested it three or four times. And I was proud of him. I, I believe he was led by the Spirit and was absolutely right. Afterwards, he was such a man of God. He encouraged the people about all the things that they were doing well, that they were doing right. I want to confess, that's a huge shortcoming in my life. I told you before we started, this would probably be a kick in the pants rather than a pat on the back. That is not because I don't love you. I'm trying to be hard on you. I simply do not have it in me to ignore what I know is wrong in the hopes that you will still like me. Are y'all are y'all with me? Yeah. I don't believe that man compromised at all. I think his ministry is slightly different, and those that are there are really, really fed by it. And I admire his ability to do it. I'm telling you that if you're here and you're called here, I'm not called to do that. I, I can't. I can't act like it's not a serious thing. I would rather fist fight with you before you left the building to get it out of your life. He said something else that was just beautiful, though. He said, please, when you get these offenses right, don't do it today. Don't do it right here. I was shocked at first. He said, let me tell you while I say that. Every time I've ever preached one of these messages and people go to get their offenses right, the vast majority of them are with me or my wife. And it's awful. Why do you think the vast majority of offenses in any congregation are with the leaders and the wives? Because we're hunting down idols that are well hidden. And they're so well hidden that it's offensive to dig them up sometimes. And you feel assaulted. Well, let me ask you, if you felt like Eric Stevens was assaulting in his words towards you, what did you do to make it have to go that far? Isn't that a reasonable question? Matthew Piro put it best on the first time somebody else defended me. I don't usually need that. But every once in a while, it's nice. man said, I hate meeting with you. It is always hard. Matt looked at him and said, stop sinning. Isn't that fair? Yeah. We'd have much better meetings. Yeah. Yeah. You think that any pastor wakes up every day and wants to go have hard words? I am proud of this congregation. I'm most proud that you can hear this and like it. I am. I am proud that you can chew the wafer with the bitter herds without the leaven. You don't need it with honey on it. You don't need it cooked a certain way. You can chew the wafer because you want it. Yeah. <clears throat> do not be deceived. Hearing the hard word is not your service to God. Doing the hard word, that is your service to God. See, in our kind of remnant church, whatever somebody wants to call us, you can think that by attending in a place where you preach like this, that you must be right with God. No, you just hadn't given me enough time to, to push you far enough to leave. 
pretending is not going to do anything for you. Ingesting it, applying it to your life, it'll do everything for you. I'm pretty sure that if you love me enough to let me close to you, I will offend all of you. But you can look backwards and see it's been good for the people that have endured it. Did you hear Matthew and Cassidy's testimony Wednesday night? Who was here on Wednesday night? I'm proud of what they've done. Like every human being, there are idols in their lives, there are idols in my life. When we discover them, we try to crush them. We examine why they're there. But we don't give up until they're gone. Have you begun to accept that you simply always will be a certain way? You in Genesis 35? Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel. Jacob had had good experiences there. He found a gateway to heaven. Would you say Jacob was saved? If Bethel means house of God, and Jacob had had an experience that you've already read about in Genesis, where a gateway, a stairway was opened to him, and he saw angels ascending and descending on it, and God spoke to him and reaffirmed a covenant with him, would you say Jacob was saved? I would say he was saved too. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Jacob and his household in Genesis 34 still had foreign gods. There's an amazing revelation that is coming here, so hang on. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me everywhere I have gone. It's amazing that you can say that and still have idols, huh? God does not abandon you because you have flaws. He is not against you because you are struggling. He is close to the broken heart. You want to find somebody that he's against? It's the one that looks at the idol, calls it righteous, and says, I am righteous. Mm. When? You will not be obedient. This was his problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees of this day. They considered themselves righteous, but they would not be obedient. But a whore, a tax collector, a publican, who was honest about his position could be considered righteous even though those foreign gods were still being stripped from their lives. It appears that God doesn't like deceit even if it is polite deceit. Well, I just didn't tell you because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. That's still deceit. Well, I just didn't want to go there because, you know, uh, it didn't seem like an appropriate time. How long will you have a job? Well, it has been three years. When will the perfect time be there if we haven't found it in three years. Jesus changed the disciples' whole way of living in three years. You beginning to feel me here? Yes. We can just attend. I come to your house once a year, pat you on the back, tell you keep tithing. But then I really wouldn't be any different than well, you already know that. Then let us come go up to Bethel where I will build an altar goes on to talk about God and his distress in verse 4. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under an oak at Shechem. 
Oh, you wonder, is he saving them for a later time? I mean, why, why bury them? Why not burn them? Uh, interesting th things are buried under oak trees when you get right down to it, but I will come back to that. It's an interesting play on Mormonism, but that's another message as well. Why don't we do this? Agree that they buried the gods, which meant they must, must have had to get rid of them? That means then, in verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Israel is prince with God. When he got rid of the foreign gods among him, he began to reign as God intended. But that's not the end of this story. And God said to him, I am, what's your Bible say? God Almighty. God Almighty in Hebrew is El Shaddai. You remember that in Hebrew there are no vowels? You remember that? Hebrew is a language of consonants. And because of that, what we have up there are phonetic spellings. El Shaddai is a phonetic spelling, but in Hebrew, uh, they're... Phonetic spelling is not the same as our English transliteration of it. Another way to say Shaddai would be a compound word, she and day. El Shaddai, Shaddai. Do y'all hear the similarity in that? Yeah. She in Hebrew is who. Day in Hebrew is enough. He had a revelation of God who after getting rid of his foreign gods, he found out is the God, El means God, God who is enough. Amen. You know when you will never know if God is enough? When you don't leave any room for Him to fill because your foreign gods are in the way. Your ability to provide. Your ability to determine your value based on your appearance. Your ability to mask the issue and hide it well. We don't find out He's enough for us because we don't leave room for Him. Did you know that the word El Shaddai appears three times, twice before this in Genesis? Would you be surprised to find out that the first time the word El Shaddai appears is in relation to Abraham? The second time it's in relation to Isaac? And the third time it's in relation to Jacob? The first three appearances of God's name, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, are in reference to the three patriarchs. All three of them had this divine name of God spoken to them at an important time in their life. Would you like to know what the common factor in all of those times in their lives is? Well, when we look at Genesis 17.1, we find out that the first appearance of the word El Shaddai is after Abraham has committed sin with Hagar. Abraham, what you just did with Hagar is going to complicate your life. I'm going to give you a new revelation Listen to me, boy. I am the God who is enough. You don't need to go grab a maidservant. You don't need to try to help me fulfill the promise. All you need to do is be obedient. When we move on from Abraham to Isaac's life, we find out that in Isaac's life is the second appearance of the word El Shaddai in the Scripture. And it's when Isaac has to send his son, the one whom he's blessed, off to a foreign land to deal with Laban. Anybody in here have to let a teenage son go soon? What a difficult thing. The thought of that wrenches my gut. An angel spoke to my wife in the presence of God and told her she would not be allowed to hold on to Judah. 
His path was determined. Oh, that's very comforting to you. You know who that's not comforting to? His mom. What a difficult, difficult thing. What a loss of control. What a feeling of helplessness. You mean they're going to have to be totally outside of my sphere of influence? What if you are the false god in your life? What if it is you buried deep inside them that is their only moral compass? What if it is you that is the only thing that puts them in any sort of relation to the Lord? How will they ever have a personal experience with Him? What if their only relationship with Him is through you? So I can't sever that. It would cut them off from the Lord. Or we would find out El Shaddai. He is more than enough. What a difficult message. I wish that I got to preach three points in a poem. Bill could write the poem. Matthew could give me three points. And I bet if I worked on it, I could deliver it in a nice way. But where would that leave us? It would leave us unchanged. And Jesus told me in 1993 that this was life-changing ministries. It takes an awful lot of determination. Maybe even some chutzpah, mama. Some old tenacity, some Jewish guts. To remove the idols from your life and push forward. But the alternative is that the Lord is simply undesirable to you. We find out that with Abraham, God was El Shaddai when he leaned on Hagar and God tried to say, I'm more than enough. We find out with Isaac, God was El Shaddai when he had to give up his son whom he had just mistakenly blessed. By the way, whose house did Rebekah come out of? She's the sister of Laban and the daughter of Nahor. Now you will begin to understand why she had no problem deceiving Isaac about Jacob. See, it seems that the people of God had developed bad habits that we never quite get rid of without a gut-wrenching crucifixion at the cross. And finally, El Shaddai is when Jacob gets rid of his foreign gods. He had just been delivered from the hand of Esau. I know you read this already, and I hate to remind it to you again, but he was actually scared that he had to go see his brother. Because he might reap what he had sown, and what he had sown was terrible things. So he did something. He sent gifts ahead. And he put his ugliest, I mean, his, his least favorite wife out front. And then, then he put the, uh, the wife closest to him in, in the back. And in between, he put lots of camels and donkeys and all kind of things. As if to, to pacify him. Like, well, he might kill the first few. But, you know, <laughs> at best he'll get the ones out in front there. And God delivered him from that. And that was not enough. And he wrestled with God. He did all kind of things with God. But God appeared to him as El Shaddai when he finally got rid of all of his foreign gods. Prior to that, God's trying to teach him the limp. <laughs> what would God do with us if we got rid of foreign gods? I pray that you're able to discern them. Do you remember what your New Testament reading was? Because you all read it yesterday. So that would be Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, I would like to show you this application quickly. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, because you all read it yesterday. This would be Matthew 14, 6 through 9. We have a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has been preaching 
that the king of the Jews, named Herod, had done an unlawful thing. He had taken his brother's wife. And because of that, they wanted to kill John the Baptist. However, Herod was uncomfortable with the idea of simply killing him. Because if he did that, it would be unpopular with the people. So Matthew 14, 6-9 says something kind of interesting. It says that his daughter, actually stepdaughter, began to dance for him. And in an oath, he made a promise, driven by lust, driven by his desires, driven by what he wanted, that he would give her anything that she wanted. Y'all remember the story now? Yeah. Sure do. You remember what she wanted? Yeah. She wanted the man of God who was uncovering idols in their lives, head on a platter. I can't tell you the ways in which I can relate to that. I don't want anybody's head on a platter. But how many times I'm pushing a household to get rid of foreign gods, and one spouse convinces the other one the problem is we need his head on the platter. Huh. Yeah. Here's the thing. Herod was greatly distressed with her request. He's a wicked man, but this was wickedness beyond where he was prepared to go. But he had bound himself by an oath. And he feared what the people around him would think of him if he broke his oath. Or I'm scared of what he would think of him if he killed the man. Just scared if he was a liar. Isn't it funny how lying and murder, uh, what an amazing thing. So although he was distressed, he cut off John the Baptist's head and put it on a silver platter for him. And what was the original offense? The man had something in his life that would destroy him. And he was called to more than that. He was called to be better than that. He was called to be free from that. He wore the title king of the Jews. But he would not get right with God. So the only alternative was to eat the pastor. I meant kill the prophet. That was your New Testament reading. I'd like to close with Exodus 18. Is that okay? I feel guilty if I don't throw a New Testament scripture in there for you. Actually, I don't. It's more of a bone to my critics, if we're honest. Your desires have the potential to get you into serious trouble. If serving the Lord seems undesirable, let's not go the whole Joshua route. I'm not going to tell you to go serve foreign gods. I'm going to put a little different twist on it. Maybe it seems undesirable because foreign gods are competing with your desire. Herod's desire puts him from a liar to a murderer. What will your desire do to your life if you let it go unchecked? Blessed are those for hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So I'm going to ask you, how hungry are you for righteousness? Listen to Moses' testimony. This is the testimony we would want to imitate. If you ever thought Moses is opposed to grace, you misunderstood the first chapter of John and have been taught poorly. If you ever thought Moses was anything other than a divine, anointed man of God who truthfully had a revelation of God unprecedented from any time in history before him. I mean, think about it. He appeared, God appeared with Moses and said, I never used this name, the one I'm about to tell you, with anybody else. How special is that? 
God's name is his character, his authority, his reputation. He said, Moses, you're going to know me in yet an even more complex, different way than Abraham did. That's amazing. When you think about it, that's amazing. How Moses gets a bad rap is beyond me. Are you all in Exodus 18? Yes. Exodus 18. Let's pick up in verse 7 and we will close with this. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. The simple testimony before we look at the results is what the Lord did to the oppressive powers and how He saved Israel. What is your testimony about? Is your testimony about how God has destroyed the oppression in your life and saved or restored you? Or is your testimony full of a lot of things but not that? This testimony is a life-changing testimony. The demonic oppressive powers God is fighting against. The prince of this world. That's the testimony. And I am proof because look, he saved me from that. Of course, it's hard to say that if we feel like we're still carrying them around inside of us but not telling them. It is a devilish thing to know that the Word of God says one thing and you believe another. That is a devilish thing. It'd be better if you didn't know it. When we know it, you must believe it and you force your mind, will, and emotions into that <coughs> belief and you force your body to carry it out. You hear me? We cannot say, I know the Word of God says this about me, but there is no but. Obedience is everything. It is everything. And when you haven't been obedient, repentance is everything. Of course, you cannot separate repentance from obedience. Look at the result of this very simple testimony. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of Egyptians. I want you to think about this. And Moses shows up on Jethro's doorstep, right? Jethro gives him a daughter. It's funny how that worked, you know. I could have just shown up in Baton Rouge, said, hey, Fred, I'm from a foreign land. Well, I got a daughter. You want her? <laughs> he must have seen something in Moses that he liked. You know, when people see something in you that they like, they begin to watch your life closely. Then it must have hurt his feelings one day when Moses came and said, I love this life you gave me in Midian, but it's, it's not good enough. God spoke to me. And I'm going somewhere else. What God spoke to you? Who spoke to you? i got to go to Egypt. I thought you left Egypt to come here. Why would you go back there? How confusing must have that been for Jethro? And he has not seen Moses since Moses' burning bush experience. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel and rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For He did this because those who treated Israel arrogant. It sends a message to people. You are scared to death that if people know about the gods in your life, if they 
begin to uncover them, that it will somehow taint you, that it will somehow categorize you, that it will ostracize you, that it will put you in a different category. What you don't realize is that you expose them so that you get healed from them, restored from them, and then the testimony to everyone that cares about you is, now I know that God is bigger than all other gods. Shouldn't he have known that before? He was a priest. Yes. He's descendant of Abraham by way of his wife, Keturah. But apparently the people of God are not very good at getting rid of foreign gods. And it takes a very brave and mighty action to do it. Who's brave in here? Who is mighty? Because that is where the testimony is. Amen. In this weakness, we can see the Lord's strength. You know, Eric, I have trouble looking at myself in the mirror. says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you dare to believe that you are not defined by the curvature of your body. You look and you say, you know, Eric, I struggle every day with the fact that I've never been as successful as my father. Or that I'm scared I'll be a failure like my father. But I looked in the Word and I saw that the plans that he had for me and I trust Him and I've driven that fear out. And we can call those things heroic. But to pretend like they're not there, let it define your personality. Separate you from people of God. Categorize you. The people of God aren't categorizing you. You are categorizing you. By choosing to live with foreign gods. Then all we have here is kind of a strange conglomerate of people who are all at least 51% committed. I want something so much more. I want a family who loves me enough to accept nothing less than all God can bring right out of my life. And I love you enough to squeeze you. I love you enough to push you. To risk running you right out of my life because... Thank you, worth it. And I personally believe that that's what a pastor's heart should be. And I'm asking you to stand now and join me. We've descended into a low place in our lives when we have gotten into an argument with those who are called of God about our potential. And we're on the position of trying to convince them we are not capable of what they say we are capable of. That is the wrong side of the fence, friends. If somebody is encouraging you towards greatness and you are convinced that they're wrong, that is an idle detector. It's the little Geiger counter going tick, 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 tick. You might consider that everything God's Word says about you is true. And it is obtained... By trusting Him. And that trust is tested. It's gut-wrenchingly hard. You find out He's more than enough during your periods of greatest loss. One of the rabbis, Beth Messiah's wife, has been in the hospital for four months. And the man is broken. He's in tears. But you can see Him as He tells the people about it. He is gaining strength. It's like he's setting himself free. 
as a 70-year-old little bitty guy. I mean, came in a miniature package. <laughs> you get the sense he's full of power. And he's not full of power because he has hidden his struggle. He's full of power because he's got it out there where he can share his struggle. What could God do I'm going to take a lesson from my wise Jewish brothers. If you're grossly offended with me, save it till tomorrow. If you're offended with my wife, save it till tomorrow. We need a day to prepare. If you're offended with each other, get it right. Get in each other's lives to the extent that you care. If you sit in the back of the church or the front of the church, don't hide from the other half. Don't do it. Get to know, if you haven't been to lunch with somebody in this building, you haven't invited each other into your houses, do it. You're missing something. Amen. You're missing Amen. something. Our king has called us to share our lives. Amen. Well, Eric, you know, I've just never been that kind of person. It's hard for me to make contact. That's an idol we take back. The word of God tells us to fellowship one another. Not just those you're comfortable with. Getting good and uncomfortable. That's how we grow. Yeah. Matthew, come close us in prayer or sing or...